Have you ever needed to give someone an apology gift? Is this a familiar thing for you? Like you left home with some conflict that wasn't resolved and you thought, okay, well maybe if I do something like send some flowers or some chocolates or something that maybe by the time I get home, things might be a little bit smoothed over. Have you ever had that experience? It's not abnormal. Uh, it's in fact a very old uh, thing, even all the way back to Genesis, which we'll see in just a minute. But some of you guys are like, I can already feel you. Father's Day's coming up and you're already picking on us, man. But uh, I just got to be honest, like women don't find themselves in that situation very often where they have to apologize sometime during the day to smooth things over. Uh, and by the way, guys, we should just be the leaders, right? To take some initiative to smooth things over, to make things right with the people in our lives. But this isn't not a new thing. It's an old thing. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In fact, it happened between a couple of brothers. One brother found himself in this situation. His name was Jacob. Jacob's twin brother Esau uh, was pretty upset with Jacob because Jacob had tricked him betrayed him, including their father Isaac, into stealing Esau's birthright and inheritance. This was not a petty argument. This is not a sense of flowers or a chocolate kind of thing. This was a very, very big deal. And in fact, Esau was so upset that he threatened Jacob's life. He said, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. And Jacob said, that's my cue. I'm out of here. Uh, I'm going to go start a new life somewhere else. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not even going to come home from work today, right? This is it. I'm gone. Except that 20 years later, God showed up to Jacob and said, Jacob, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. Jacob didn't really have anything any reason to stay where he was in fact he couldn't really stay where he was he had to go somewhere but he didn't really want to go home but he knew God had told him to so he starts making his way toward home and he's carrying in tow all of his family all of his possessions all of his livestock and the closer he gets to the Jabbok River which is the border of his homeland where Esau is on the other side of you the more afraid he gets you can just sense the terror rising. 20 years have gone by. He hasn't spoken with his brother. He doesn't know what to expect. All he remembers is the last thing he said to him, which was, I'm going to kill you, Jacob. And he's going, okay, if I remember right about Esau, and you remember the story, the Bible tells us that Esau's a, he's a big dude. And uh, he's not just a big dude. He's an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He doesn't just know how to kill someone. He knows where to hide the body. And so Jacob is like, just building this fear as he approaches the river, which is the border of their homeland. And he says, I've got an idea. What if I send him a gift? What if I smooth things over a little bit with Esau ahead of time? And so on the way, he starts just sending things ahead. He's sending, you know, goats and sheep and, and bulls and cows and donkeys and even servants to go along with all of these things just so that he might appease Jacob, that it might soften the blow just a bit, uh, excuse me, appease Esau and soften the blow just a bit that he's anticipating when he gets there. But what happens is that Jacob sends all of his stuff, all of his people, even pushes his family in front of him across that little river so that by the end of the day, he is left completely alone. 
all by himself. Everything to his name has already been sent forward. And so what happens? Well, an angel of the Lord shows up and has just like a come to Jesus moment with Jacob that lasts all night. And it transforms Jacob from a self-sufficient schemer, right, into a self-sacrificing servant. Now Jacob has kind of the right mindset. And the next morning when he looks up, he sees Esau coming, not just by himself, but with 400 men. There's got to be some terror there. He's still got to be deathly afraid of what's going to happen. But now he's got no one to hide behind. He's got nothing left to put in front of him. It's just him. And so finally, what he should have done in the first place, he finally presents himself to Esau, and he's bowing to the ground seven times, the Bible tells us, bowing to the ground. He's expecting rage and revenge, which you probably couldn't blame Esau for, but what does he get? If you read that story in Genesis 32 and 33, Esau embraces his brother. He gives him a bear hug. There's tears shed. Jacob thought he was getting revenge, and what he got was mercy from his brother. He didn't deserve it, but he got it. He didn't really know what to do with it because Esau, you know, this big burly Esau, kind of, I picture them in this big bear hug with tears flowing, and then at some point he just kind of like stands back and maybe with his hands on Jacob's shoulders just says, hey brother, what's the deal with all the stuff that you sent yesterday? He actually says, what? What, what do you mean by the procession that I saw? Like this parade of gifts that you were sending to me. What do you mean by that? And Jacob said, I, I was just trying to earn your favor, my Lord. I needed to find favor with you, my Lord. And Esau is holding in there, and I love this line, what he says right there in Genesis 33. He says, Jacob, I have enough my brother, keep what you have. I have enough, my brother, keep what you have. He's saying, Jacob, I don't want what you can give. I just wanted you. I just wanted you. And that story is the backdrop. It paints the picture of what the apostle Paul is teaching to the church at Rome and the church right here at Moverly Baptist Church in East Texas from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn to it. Open your Bibles up to Romans 12, 1. Hey, listen, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, maybe you're sitting at home today. Maybe you're at the Marshall campus today and you go, well, I, I came, but I don't have a Bible. Or I turned on uh, worship this morning, but I, my Bible's not here. Just grab your phone. I'm going to give you permission. You can use your phone, whatever device you have. And if you Google Romans 12, colon 1, the first link that comes up will be something you can use, like a Bible.com or a BibleGateway.com. You just click on that because it's so important for you to see what God is saying to you this morning. And so you've turned there to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I just want to read this for us and let it kind of sink into our hearts and minds so we get ready to hear what God has to say to us. It says, Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, Therefore, Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is your true worship. So here's the point. God isn't pleased with anything we give him unless we first give him ourselves. God isn't pleased with anything we give him unless we first give him ourselves. So let's unpack this verse. Paul has spent 11 chapters in Romans. If you haven't read Romans, this is just kind of a synopsis. The first 11 chapters Paul spent arguing for a doctrine of salvation, and it's all about grace through faith, right? You can't work for your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. And he's arguing for this almost like a a lawyer arguing a court case for 11 chapters, hitting every facet of that one concept, trying to convince us that this is the right way of thinking because the reality is we'll never have a right way of being until we have a right way of believing. And he's using this Romans 12.1 as a transition piece to go, okay, the first 11 chapters were about doctrine. And so now from Romans 12, 1 through 16 is going to be all about doing. It's going to be about how does doctrine become practical in your life? Or what is this, what difference does it make for you? And so here we are right at the beginning and, and we get this word, therefore, which as we read our Bibles, that's kind of a throwaway word, right? We just ignore it. We move right on. But no, he's saying that it's not a throwaway word. It matters. It's important. He's saying I'm building on this argument for a doctrine of salvation that's by grace through faith. Why? Because naturally our bend, our way of thinking is to think that we relate to God by having to work for his favor. That's a consequence of sin and the fall of humanity. You remember that God said to Adam that he would have to work and toil for everything he would get from the land. Well, we've taken that physical reality and made it a spiritual reality improperly. And we now look at God and we think, well, if I want something from God, then I've got to work for it. I've got to earn his favor, right? I've got to give him something so that, uh, so that he'll be happy with me. I've got to smooth things over with him so that he won't be too hard on me. That's our natural way of thinking, but the message of the Bible is the exact opposite, right? The message of the Bible is completely different. The Bible tells us that sin is is like a hole that we've dug (laughs) for ourselves, and if we just keep digging, we'll never dig our way out of it. The only way out of the hole of sin is to be rescued, And that's exactly what God has given us. The Bible teaches us through Jesus Christ, God's given us a rescuer. And this is incredible. And so in the first 11 chapters of Romans, talking about doctrine, you get right in the middle in Romans 6.23, this incredible truth that for the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the gift, just think about all that that word implies. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Romans 12, 1, he says, therefore, right, we're building on the first 11 chapters. This reality of salvation is by grace alone through faith. And he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, right, those of you who share this belief, it's not a popular belief, but it it will never be a lonely belief. 
We're in this together, brothers and sisters. We're in this together. So I, I urge you, he says, I urge you. Remember what, um, what we said is that he's transitioning here from a way of believing, right? A right belief to now a way of being. And, and there's an amazing fa- freedom in living not for God's favor, but living from God's favor, right? You can sense the freedom in that. Uh, but, but don't miss the next words. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you that now that I can see God's mercy, now that God is coming more into focus for me, now that I know how he treats me, now that I know where salvation comes from, right, by grace through faith, not of any of my own works, right, now that all of this is in view, I have a response to make to God. And he says, I urge you, I implore you. Your translation might say, I appeal to you. I urge you. So when you look at your life before Christ and you see the reality of your sin, And then God's mercy comes into view. And maybe you just catch just a glimpse of God's mercy in your life and what he's forgiven you from. It compels us. It compels us to be different because there's a response to be made about his mercy. So he's not saying in view of God's mercy when you get around to it or in view of God's mercy, hey, when it's convenient for you or in view of God's mercy when you get your life together No, 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 he's saying, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, there's a response to be made. When you look at your life and now you see his mercy in it, you will be moved to action. And not just once, not just at the time of salvation. Because think about what Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 says, right? For uh, the Lord's faithful love, because of his faithful love, We don't perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, God's mercy ought to move you every single day because God's mercy is new for you every single day. God never wakes up tired of your failure. God never wakes up exasperated by you. God's mercy never fades. God's mercy never tapers. And that reality alone ought to be compelling to us. As as he says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, it ought to be compelling to us to do something about it, to respond to God. But what is it? We're getting practical, right? We're moving from believing to being, from doctrine to doing. So here it is. This is Paul's practical statement. His instruction, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's it? That's his big practical advice? Like that's the leadoff hitter for practical? Because I don't know if I really get that at first glance. And if you're reading your Bible, that's something that you probably see and you go, what? Present 
my body as a living sacrifice. Well, I, my body is, is needed here, right? My body's needed at my house to mow the lawn. Uh, my body's needed to sit in the car in the pickup line and wait for my kids after school. My, my body's needed at work. I got things to do. I got bills to pay. And what is this living sacrifice paradox? I don't understand what that means. Sacrifices are supposed to die, right? Well, here's the amazing truth, and we'll put this all together. Jesus was the dying sacrifice once and for all for sin, right? The penalty of death, all of the punishment of sin was placed on Jesus, and his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sin was what we needed to be forgiven because we could never be worthy of dying for our own sin. We could never be worthy of dying in order to gain God's forgiveness. But praise God, now we can live from God's forgiveness, a life that is holy and pleasing to him because of what Jesus has done for us. So we're starting to put this picture together. We can be a living sacrifice because we are alive through Christ by faith. So we present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Yeah, I'll never forget as a seventh grader in all of my seventh grade wisdom uh, and uh, you know, just becoming a teenager, thinking I, had this, I just got it together. I just know what life is about, right? Um, you teenagers, maybe you need to be tracking with me here. Uh, I was sitting in my best friend Blake Johnson's bedroom as a seventh grader, and uh, I was sitting in a chair. He was sitting on his bed, and we were probably playing Sega Genesis or something like that, but I had this like spiritual epiphany. And I, I thought, oh my goodness, I figured it out. And I said, dude, if God forgives us for everything, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> and he goes, dude, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> and he was right. He was right, not, not because God's still mad at you for your sin, not because God's some, holding something over you for your sin, but he was right because of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He says that Jesus died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but instead they should live for the one who died for them and was raised. So in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice means, yes, continue to go about your life, but do it with a new purpose. Do it with a new commitment. Do it with dedication to the Lord. Everything about you, your mind, your intellect, your spirit, your emotions, and yes, even your body, use it for the Lord. Commit it. Offer it to God every day. Offer it to God. Because to present our bodies as a living sacrifice simply means to make our entire body, our entire lives, an offering to God. And I think most Christians are there with belief. I think most Christians are there with belief. Like we know that. We understand that. We know that's got what God wants. But Paul's making the transition from believing to being, right, from doctrine to doing. And I think tons of Christians today are having a really hard time making that transition from believing to being, to going, yeah, I, I know I'm supposed to give my whole life to God, but I just am not sure how that plays out. I'm not sure what that looks like 
Well, I want to just coach you in this and teach you it's not a spiritual ideal to hold on to that God wants your whole life. It's actually an imperative that's going to require both some inward and some outward movement. It's going to require some action on your part, right? God took the initiative for our salvation, but now it's our turn to take some initiative, right, to present ourselves to him, to be used by him, to glorify him, to to do what he wants, to value what he values. And there's lots of ways that that can play out outwardly, but maybe inwardly it's as simple as just not holding God at arm's length anymore. Maybe inwardly it's just just as simple as like letting your guard down with God when you talk to him and being honest with him. It doesn't have to be that complicated, but you know what happens when you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. There's joy in that. It's not compulsory. There's freedom in it. Because when you truly experience the mercy and the forgiveness of God, you're able then to present yourself freely to him, not on your own merit, but the merit of Jesus Christ. And you can do that without the hindrances of fear and guilt or shame. You can present yourself to God completely and freely. The the message of the Bible isn't, here's what I have, Lord, will you accept me? No, the message of the Bible is, God has made us his own through salvation by faith. And so we can say to him, I am yours, Lord. Now here's all I have. What do you think would have happened if Jacob got to that river in Genesis 32 and 33 and he had Esau's mercy in view? Do you think if he had any inkling that Esau had mercy on him that he would have sent everything he owned, even his family across the river before him? Of course not. No, if he knew, if he had a view of the mercy of his brother toward his life, he would have been the first one across the river. He would have been running to his brother, embracing the embrace that he would have expected that he got. And, and you know what would have happened? This is the really cool part. If he would have gone first, all of his stuff would have followed. All the animals, all the offerings, all the gifts, all the servants, all the people, it all would have come. It all would have followed. If you think about this, the animals ended up in the very same spot geographically, right there in the same location. And had Jacob gone first, they would have ended up there in a whole different attitude and mindset and way of being, right? Because the first time they ended up there out of guilt, out of fear and compulsion. But if Jacob had, had Esau's mercy in view and been able to be the first one across the road and then everything else had followed him and what they would have come to they would have followed him and seen him embracing his brother and they would have ended up in the same place but it would have been from a place of joy and freedom and fulfillment if he just would have offered himself first here's the amazing reality is that you and I already have a view of God's mercy. We already know about forgiveness through Christ. 
And if we have God's mercy in view, we can be the first ones across the river, so to speak, running to God every day, saying, I am yours. I am yours. Here's what I have. Take it all. That's the kind of response Paul's teaching. When we get the mercy of God in, in view, we give ourselves to him first. And of course, we'll bring along our family. Of course, we're going to be generous to him in our offerings. And of course, we're going to offer ourselves, our lives to him through acts of service. But none of it would be pleasing to him unless we've first given him ourselves. And so Paul says, when we get this in the right order, this is your true worship. This is your true worship. And, and the way I first memorized that verse years ago is one of the first verses I ever memorized was, this is your spiritual act of worship. Maybe your translation says that. Other translations say, this is your reasonable service. Do you think I present my body to God as a living sacrifice, like ready for, to do whatever he wants, ready to value whatever he values. This is my true worship. Like this is where worship starts to become real. This is where worship starts to make sense is when I begin by presenting my body, giving myself to God first before I ever try to give him stuff to appease him or smooth things over. If I just give him myself, this is where worship makes the most sense. It supersedes songs. It supersedes styles. It cannot be confined to a time or a place because it's who we are to express value and thanksgiving and gratitude to God. This is your true worship, and it makes sense. I love what the word here is in the Greek, and you're gonna, the only reason I bring it up is because you're going to recognize it. The word is logikos. Logikos. It's logical. This is, it just makes sense that this is our response to God. Well, why does it make sense? Well, if you're in, looking in view of God's mercy, how did he show you mercy? Did he give you stuff? No. Did he give you finances? No. He gave you himself. He gave you himself through Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He took on death so you could live. And so, yes, the most logical response, what makes the most sense, the, fir the first point, the starting point for true and real worship, it's not like a tip in the offering plate here and there. It's not just to show up to church enough so that I don't feel guilty about my life. It's not looking at my last failure and going, God, I'll do better next time. No, my truest act of worship where I start with God is presenting myself to him giving him all of me and letting the other stuff follow. It's the only logical response to God. It's where true worship starts. We give to him exactly what he gave to us, our whole being. Because God won't be pleased with anything else until we give him first ourselves. So how can we know if we've gotten it backwards and need a reset? 
This is where it gets super practical, right? I mean, Paul gave his practical transition to the Romans, so let me give you some practical things and just point out a few things. How can we know? It's not exhaustive, but maybe it'll just trigger some things in your mind to go, actually, maybe I did get something backwards, and maybe I need to give myself to God first and then look at that stuff. The first thing is this. Does God feel unapproachable to you? Does God feel unapproachable? It's just like Jacob. When he got closer to that river, he goes, I I can't go to God. i got to send him all this stuff. If God feels unapproachable, if you feel like there's like shoulda, woulda, couldas in your life, or if you feel like you've got to show up just so that God would be happy with you, if that's anywhere in your mind and heart, you might have this backwards. And God wants to show you it's time to flip the script on that. And he's ready with a, a huge bear hug of mercy for you to come to him just as you are. And then let the other stuff come along, right? The second thing is this. Do your conversations about God and the Bible stop when you leave church? I mean, that ought to just be like a red flag to you to go, man, maybe I got this stuff backwards. If we get in the car to leave church with my family and it's just like zips the lip, we're moving on to something else. What birthday party do we have to go to? Uh, what are we doing for school tomorrow? Uh, what are our summer plans? Uh, what, where, when are we packing up for vacation? I mean, if it's just like you're out of here and you're out of here and the conversation stops, I'm just saying it might be an indicator that you've gotten things a little backwards. Maybe you were just coming to maybe just appease God and then moving on with the rest of your life. But what God wants is all of your life. And then you'll come because of that. Third thing is this. Worship feels like a chore. It almost doesn't seem worth it. When, when we start seeing church attendance as expendable or maybe it's just too hard, and I get it. Like I have little kids, and, and I'm so thankful for my wife. She's like a single mom on Sundays because of my role at church. And she gets the kids up, and she gets there, and she gets ready. But we know that Sunday is like high time for fights, right? You're getting up on Sunday morning, and you thought, I'm making it to church. I'm doing it this time. And then all of a sudden, your toddler throws a tantrum, and, and you know somebody burnt a toast or whatever it is. And it just erupts like an explosion. And you go, is it even worth it for us to do this, to get up early? Like, can't we just turn on the, the TV and, uh, and, and, you know, watch a sermon from someone or something else? I mean, can't we just participate online? And those of you who are participating online, I'm just challenging you, participate online. If it's online and you're going, yeah, I'm just going to turn it on so that I can keep doing the stuff that I need to do today and just check into church a little bit, I'm just saying maybe you got it backwards. Maybe you haven't given yourself to God Maybe you're still just trying to give him stuff and activity and good works. So when worship starts to feel like a chore, maybe not even worth it, maybe you're in that place. Or how about this? You, you, you dread being asked to serve at church. I mean, like you can see the people with the name tags coming and you're like ducking out of their way because you know what's about to happen. You dread being asked. I just wonder if that's because... You feel like you're already stressed with what you're giving to everybody else, to your jobs, to your families, and you just haven't quite gotten to the point where you're ready to give yourself fully to God and find the joy and freedom that comes with serving Him rather than the compulsion that comes with serving Him. Maybe you got it backwards. So what does it look like then to give yourself to God? 
What does it look like to give yourself to God? Just a few things. Daily commit your life to God. Daily commit your life to God. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, I think I can even like anticipate what you're thinking. You go, okay, here's another quiet time sermon. Here's another, you know, do your spiritual duty sermon. Here's another spend more time in prayer sermon. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. If you think that's what I'm saying, you've missed the whole point, right? We're trying to reverse that to say we just want to give God ourselves because of his mercy on our lives. Here's a good example of this. It's not complicated, but a great friend of mine and a mentor of mine told me at one point, I think he still does this, but for most of his life, he's woken up every morning and said, good morning, Lord. Good morning, Lord. And it's the first thing out of his mouth. Can't you just tell that's a person who's committed his life to God? who's given God everything about himself. Daily commit your life to God. Make your faith public through baptism. I love this. You saw the video celebrating just a few of the baptisms we've experienced. Even this last week at junior high camp, there was maybe a dozen, I don't know the exact number, of baptisms from both campuses. And we had just, we're going to celebrate that. But that's a great way just to say, I'm all in, right? It's that public display of faith in Christ Jesus to say what God's done in me. Now I'm going to show the world. I'm going to tell the world I'm all in. I'm all God's. I'm offering myself to him I'm not ashamed so if you haven't taken that step that's a great way just to say God I'm yours here's all I have third is open up your schedule to prioritize creating Christian community open up your schedule to prioritize creating Christian community because what I've learned in years of serving in the church is that Christian community doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen magically if you just show up to church and come to worship and then you get in your car and go home. It takes some initiative on your part. And when God says to present yourself to him, what I'm saying is, man, just take take some initiative, right? Join a group, start a group, call the connect pastor, talk to your pastor or minister in your ministry area, like call the church office and just say like, I need some people. You remember he said, therefore, brothers and sisters, right? It's not a popular belief, but it'll never be a lonely belief. We've got to create that community around us. And so that's just a way that we show God, I'm, I'm yours, I'm all in. And then here's lastly, is sign up for every volunteer position you can in the church until you've figured out the one you're meant to be in. And I promise you, this is not a bait and switch. I mean, you walk up and down the children's classrooms and there's not as many teachers as there used to be. And you walk into the, the church uh, buildings and you realize there's not as many greeters as there used to be. I know you're seeing this stuff. And what I'm saying is, uh, is not, hey, just do more for God. What I'm saying is present yourself to God and find out what he might have you do. Present yourself to God and find out what he might have you do. And and I promise you this is not just a bait and switch because it's literally what comes next in Paul's instructions to the Romans. If you read, and I would challenge you to read verses 3 through 8, it's all about discovering your spiritual gift and finding your place in the body of Christ. And so it's just a practical way to say if you want to present your body as a living sacrifice, take a step to do that. God has mercy on you. God's not mad at you. God's not holding something over you. He's not holding a grudge. If you would just come to him by faith and receive his mercy, receive it in a way that you give him your whole life, that you present yourself to him 
And everything about you changes because of who he is to you.